One of my favorite television shows of all time is Seinfeld. It's, it's sometimes inappropriate, but most of the time it's irreverent, and I like it. Um, one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is uh, Jerry meets a woman who uh, accidentally runs into her, and, and he realizes that he's in love with this woman because she's exactly like him. They sit across the table and they finish each other's sentences. Uh, they even like the same cereal. They even eat cereal for meals as an adult, which is a little strange sometimes. But, but they like the same cereal. They like the same things. And he comes to the realization. He says, I've I, I found the person I've been looking for my whole life, myself. And he gets engaged to the woman. But over the course of the episode, he realizes how annoying this woman is. He realizes he wasn't looking for himself at all. And in the, the peak of this episode, he, he looks at his neighbor, Kramer, the other one with the high hair. He says, I hate myself. <laughs> he was too much for himself to handle. So he says that he has to be with someone who's exactly the opposite of him. In a way, I understand that. I'm so very glad that I married my complete opposite. And I'm sure that you guys mostly are too that I married an opposite, not you. We all have different likes. We all have different loves. We, we all have different passions. And even in a married couple, we often have differences. An extrovert often marries an introvert. And being married can be hard. You're taking one selfish sinner and taking another selfish sinner and trying to get them to commit to take care of the other person more than they take care of themselves. That's not just in marriage. That's every relationship that we have. It's what makes relationships great. I don't want to hang out with people who are just like me. That's boring and loud and often obnoxious. I want differences. Now think about this. Think about how many times you found yourself differing with someone else. What food to eat. I remember being in Times Square with, with Morgan and a couple friends, and they couldn't figure out what to eat for dinner. I said, you're in New York City. Literally, go eat anything. Well, not everything, but you can eat most things. What to eat for dinner, what to, what to, where to go on vacation. Do we go to the mountains or to go to the beach? Do we have coffee or tea? Do we support this team or that team? We have all have differences. We come from different backgrounds. Some of you were raised in very strict homes. Others were raised in homes where your parents didn't care what you did as long as you came in at some point in the night. Some were raised in a home with Christian parents and you were discipled at an early age. Some of you were not. You may not think the same way that I do, but the church is one big family comprised of people who are often very different we have church members who were born in the 1930s, probably even in the 1920s. And we have little children who walked out of this room. We have decades separating us. We have former hippies and current hipsters in the church. This church, like every other church, is made up of people who are so different in so many ways, yet come together for one common purpose. Have you ever thought about how difficult this is? How incredibly difficult it is to unite people who think differently, who act differently, who look differently, who behave differently, to think that we all have to come together and unite, how difficult that is. Miraculous, maybe. If you read through just Paul's writing, you'll see that the church 
was a difficult place just a few thousand years ago it is, as it is today. The, the church, the local assembly, is trying to do something that no organization does. To gather people who have little to nothing in common and get them to give up their rights in order to bless others. I can't think of another organization that does this. Now I'll get to this later, but I hear people say often that Christians don't need the church. I hear too often. And I'll often ask what they do about the biblical instructions to, to not forsake the assembly. Sometimes their response is, well, we, we just worship with our family and friends. And, and then to that I say, well, who are your elders? Who are your deacons? Where, what do you do with church discipline? But what I'm trying to, to communicate more now is that the church is not supposed to just be your family and your friends. The church is supposed to be from people from different walks of life who come together to love and care for one another. And this is difficult in some churches and some people don't even try. They separate themselves from fellowship, thinking that they can survive as a solo Christian. But it doesn't work. God has not called us to be alone. In fact, it's the exact opposite. See, Paul was writing to a church in Corinth that was suffering the same problems that we face, a lack of unity. They had doctrinal issues. They had behavioral issues. They had people doing all sorts of horrific things. And at the same time, they're splitting apart. They're breaking at the seams. And Paul is trying as best he can to repair that breach. They kept forgetting the necessity of taking care of others before themselves. In essence, they've taken their eyes off of the gospel and turned inward. What is it that I can get out of this? What do, what do I gain from this? Well, this passage this morning is just two verses. Two short verses, but it's packed with lots of truth and full of application as we try to live out the Christian life for the best we can. And so we see in verse 12, that the church is unified in one body. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the, one, of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul uses the illustration of a human body uh, as an illustration for the local church. And, and we'll see this, pardon the pun, fleshed out a little more in chapter 12. Uh, but here he begins this idea of comparing the church to your physical body. Now, what I want you to do is think about how your body functions. Think about the things that you don't think about. Think about how you breathe without telling your brain, breathe. Now, cumbersome and tiresome that would be. Take a breath. Breathe again. Breathe again. Have you ever thought that you don't have to tell your eyes or your eyelids to blink? Like you just do it? You breathe? You can sleep and breathe at the same time. A wondrous thing. God designed our bodies to function in a way that just works. Now as we get older, some of those things don't work as well. And some people uh, have difficulties with parts of their body that they're not working at all and, and surgery or whatever else has to come into it. But there is still complexity there. This is God's design, but what happens when something in your body does not work correctly? Now I have a, a family history of depression. And what's happened is, is through years of alcohol abuse and on one side of my family that I get the, the benefits of that. I reap the rewards of that depression and, so, um, and anxiety. And so what's happened is, is all those years of, of alcohol abuse has caused me not to be able to sleep at night. So what do I do? I take medication. I can fall asleep, but I can't get into deep sleep, so I take medication that helps me to stay asleep. 
Well, because of that medication, I get dry mouth. And so all of these things are, are not working correctly, which causes a cascade of other problems. But my body was designed by God, just like each one of yours, to function. But the effect of living in a fallen world, and we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the effect of living in a post-Genesis 3 world has caused everything to go in the wrong direction. We, we, we see this in the world today where people think some things that they're not, they, that, that a male can think that they're a female and vice versa. And all of these things that go on in the world all happens because of Genesis 3, that, that fall created it, including the fact that our bodies don't work correctly. Now back to this illustration. Even in my cascading physical problem, God's design is clear. The human body is complex. Now think about this. If you lost an eye, you could still live. If you lost a limb or multiple limbs, you can still live. You can still have a full life. You can still have a joyful life, but it's not going to be as easy as it would be if you had all of those parts. Think about what happens when one of those body parts is removed. Two things happen. First, the part that's cut off will die. It cannot survive on its own. It needs blood flow. It needs all of the nutrients that your body gives to, to give. If you cut your hand off, your hand's not going to just magically become cousin it and run around the house. It doesn't work that way. Second, the body may continue to live, but it will not thrive. Again, losing a part of your body or separating parts of your body, you can still survive, but you will not thrive. It will be much more difficult. I hope you see where I'm going with this. That Paul's talking about the, the human body is very similar to the church. And Paul's saying that you are as a body, and he gets more into this in chapter 12 at the end of the chapter, where he talks about the different parts of the body. But here, he's saying that the, this passage applies to the physical body, but it also applies to the church. Each of us have a role to play. Your hands are worthless if you don't have an arm to connect your hands to your body. Your mouth means nothing if you don't have the muscular structure and if you don't have the bones to move it. All of it works together to accomplish a bigger purpose. And the church cannot thrive without each person using their gifts in unity. Now there are two things that should be clear throughout the study of 1 Corinthians from chapter 1 all the way through. First, unity of the church around the gospel is vital for the health of the local church. Disunity Conflicts, disagreements over non-essential issues are spiritual termites that will slowly eat away at the foundation of what we are. And on top of that, that the crumbling of the church will be seen by those outside and they will want nothing of what we do. Number two, Christians will have natural differences, ethnicity, language, socioeconomic groups, but we are brought together through the power of the Holy Spirit only God can do this. That's the unity that's found in the church, that it transcends politics, it transcends wealth, or anything else that divides people today. This is the truth of the gospel, that it brings people together that have no other reason to be together. How do I know this? Look at the first part of verse 13. We are baptized into one body. And someone may see this and think that Paul is referring to water baptism. After all, it's the exact same Greek word as, as water baptism. So you say, well, wait, we've been baptized, so then that would mean maybe we require baptism. So the word Paul uses, but it's not just the word that he uses, but the spirit behind the word. 
This isn't a bad thing. Don't get panicking that we're all going heretical, but we do this all the time in our own speaking. You've said this. It's been forever since I've seen you. No, it hasn't. It's not true. I'll die if I don't just get that job. No, you won't. You'll be okay. But you know exactly what I mean if I say that. Strictly defined, those statements make no sense. You won't literally die, but those words point us to a bigger meaning. Here, Paul isn't referring to water baptism, something that's an outward sign of an inward reality. He's pointing to the spirit baptism that comes through the work of God in our salvation. As one can be immersed in water, so a believer is immersed in spiritually into the body of Christ. While a Christian can't avoid being baptized, don't recommend that. It's kind of a command of Scripture. No Christian can avoid being baptized with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. This happens when we are born again. Every single believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul's main point here is that baptism with one spirit unites the church and makes the church one body. Again, remember, everything is kind of argued with the basis of unity, 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 unity in all things. And this is what Paul has been trying to get through to the church in Corinth. Um, over the last um, 16 months, we've all experienced um, just a different, different world that's not the same. It probably never will be. Millions of people worldwide have died. Nine months ago, we experienced a, a bitter presidential race that I hope we never get to experience again. I, I'm glad that it's only every four years that we have to experience that. And if that weren't bad enough, churches have seen a sharp decline in membership. Now, I'm not saying attendance. Attendance is understood with COVID, but, but a decline in membership. And so I, I called a couple pastor friends, actually probably about a half dozen, and I said, hey, what decline, not of attendance, but what decline of membership have you experienced? And every single one said about the same what we're experiencing here. We, yeah, we've lost about a quarter of our people who are members before COVID. And every single one, churches of young and old, I have a friend who has Grammy winners as worship leaders. And the church is young in Nashville and he's lost core people. And it may take years for us to figure this out uh, of what this is going to do to churches. Some uh, churches will likely become more staunch, so the people who disagree are leaving, and so they dig their heels in deeper and, and become more firm in, in certain aspects of their doctrine. Unfortunately, smaller churches may die because of this. And I've wondered how much of this has happened, certainly not all, but I've wondered how much of this has happened because people didn't seek unity first. And I'm saying this as an elder, and I'm saying this on behalf of the elders. Maybe we didn't seek unity first. Uh, maybe the church members didn't seek unity first. And if our goal was unity, to see ourselves baptized together as one body, would we put so much emphasis on the things that we do? Or would we do all that we can to seek out ways to be a blessing to others? Paul didn't know about COVID, but he knew the human condition, probably better than anybody but Christ. He knew that people are the same today as they were in Corinth, and so he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, but to all Christians everywhere to remember that they have been brought to a bigger purpose than just themselves. I know I keep saying this, but it's vital for us to get this if we see the scope of Paul's words Something else to consider. Uh, some of our charismatic friends may, may read this and say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is just the, the initial uh, speaking in tongues and, and, and the charismatic gifts. 
They say that this is shown through speaking in tongues. Now, if that were the meaning behind Paul's statement, though, it would be doing exactly the opposite of what he said for the first 11 chapters so far. The danger is that it leads to one to believe that there are spiritually elite people who, who, who have the ability to speak in tongues while others do not. So there's these special people and then there's the normal people. Now, would that bring unity? Having classes in the church? No, it would not. It would bring division. So Paul says that the church is unified in one body and the church is baptized into one body. Unity through our differences. Now, let me ask you this. What's the best way to have unity? Think about it. Many people would say, well, unity comes when everyone thinks and acts the same. That's where true unity comes in. And you say, well, wait, I can use sports as an example that, that on a team, whatever team you want to do, um, but on a team that unity happens or success happens when every single player has set aside things and said, you know what, we're buying into it. We're all with the same purpose, all with the same goals, all with that. And you say, well, that's, that's what unity is. So naturally, some would say when a church, that's the same thing that needs to happen. A, a collective vision, something that everyone can buy into, and I'm with you so far. But if we take that a step further, what's the easiest way to get there? Just make sure everybody's the same. Let me unpack this. Church growth movements in the 70s and 80s discovered something. They said that churches that grow the largest and the fastest have one thing in common. Everybody's the same. So if you want to grow a church, just make sure everyone's the same color, they come from the same background, they make the same amount of money, they shop at the same stores, they live in the same neighborhoods. If you want to grow a church fast, that's the easiest way to do it. And so churches adopted this. And if you think about it, churches that are overwhelmingly middle class will grow faster than a church that has various socioeconomic groups. A church of one race or ethnic group will grow faster than a church that is diverse. Why? Because we are all more comfortable with people who are just like us. That thinking goes that if, if people agreed on a majority of things, people came from the same background, we would all join together, and so we would have much less to argue about, much less that divides us, because we're already unified. Now, if you're wondering what I'm saying is true, I'll step on your toes for a second. Who do you spend time with the most? If you're in your 70s or 80s, my question is, do you have anyone outside of your family in their 20s or 30s that you spend a lot of time with? The answer is probably no. And if you're in your 20s or 30s, do you have anybody outside of your family in their 70s or 80s that you spend time with? And the answer is probably no. How, how many people do you spend time with who, who are outside of your socioeconomic class? What about different ethnicity? political party, theological persuasion. See, what I'm getting to here is that unity is much easier when you're already unified through experiences and preferences. The church in Corinth was different. It was different than our church or most churches today. The church in Corinth was diverse, Jew and Gentile, people who were at odds with each other's existence. They hated each other, and yet they were both brought to Christ, and now they're in the same community and trying to get along. They were now worshiping and serving together. There were disagreements over theology and what worship would look like. Issues of gender had caused, caused division in the church. Some of the members were doing things that harmed fellow believers, and they didn't seem to care that much. There was sexual immorality, selfishness, lawsuits against each other. 
This was a church with conflict. And those church growth guys would say, well, you, you should have avoided all that. You should have just planted a church for, for Jews and over here for Gentiles. Let them be separate. Paul's like, that's not what we're, that's not what we're supposed to be. That's not what our aim is supposed to be. God, in his wisdom, brought these people together. They were very different, and that created all sorts of problems. And that's Paul's purpose of writing this letter, to correct those errors. And you may say this, well, I don't see that in the text. I don't see that. These are two verses. You've gone on a lot about this stuff, and I don't see that. Well, look at the middle part of verse 13. It says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Let's go back in time, just in the United States, not, not even that long ago. Let's go back 100 years. 100 years in this town or any town in the South and think about could it be possible for a church to have white and black in membership? Maybe. Do we read about those? No. In fact, the, the entire denominations, the African Methodist Episcopal movement was designed because black members in the church were not allowed privileges that white members were. And so they had to start their own denomination so that they could be pastors and deacons and elders so that they could serve equally. Can you imagine what church would have been like 100 years ago if we were fully integrated, if we were mixed? Can you imagine what the, the black Christians in the church would have felt like? Unwanted, hated, abused. Now you have a picture, maybe even not even as much, but you have a picture of what the church in Corinth would have been like. The Jews were taught that the Gentiles were pigs, that they were the scum of the earth. And now, not only are you members in my church, now I have to love you and serve you. I have to sacrifice what I want so that you can be blessed. The person that I was taught to hate, I have to love now? It's a big task. But here's something interesting in all of this, and this is encouraging. Even though there was racial and ethnic division, there was open slavery being practiced. And even through all of that, everyone was still commanded to serve each other, to love each other, to contribute to the church. One spirit baptism established and united the church. No matter what someone's social standing was, they were united into one family and they were all given the same task, to glorify God. In other words, there are no partial Christians and there are no partial church members. You are a full believer and a full church member. Paul is saying that everyone born into the household of God stays in the household of God. While the world divides over non-gospel things, Christians are joined together by the power of God. This is an amazing thing what happens in a local church. Ephesians 4 says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many, uh, for many, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So under this point of uniting through our differences, I want to give you two thoughts. First, differences matter, but they shouldn't divide. 
God created us different. Yes, there is one human race, but we come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different experiences, different parts of the world. All of that makes us who we are. Yes, our main identity is found in Christ, certainly, but we cannot reject your family history. Just as much of, uh, of this area is proud to be Scots-Irish, I don't want you to forget that. I want you to embrace that, love that, appreciate that. But for some, talking about our differences is scary. We see that there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. But that means that our standing before God is the same. That I am no more or less guilty than someone who looks very different than me on the other side of the planet. But I'm also no more or less great in the eyes of Christ to that person either, as long as we are both found in the Savior. We're all sinners in need of salvation, but it doesn't mean that our differences are somehow wiped away. My challenge to you, if you, you're disagreeing or having difficulty with this, is look at Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, most of you would see that and not think about gender roles in the church. I believe firmly that the Bible is clear that there are, are, are gender roles in the church, specifically in terms of elder, that elder is reserved for males in the church. This is not me. This is what I see clearly in Scripture. So that cannot mean that if there is no male or female that all uh, gender divisions are wiped away. That, that, that can't be possible because Paul himself talks about this. So if the same goes for men and women, the same must be said of differences in ethnicity. If the statement that there is neither Jew nor Greek means all distinctions are gone, then there cannot be distinctions of gender in the church, and now we open up the office of elder to every person. This leads to the second point here. We must embrace our differences as God-giving and God-glorifying. To be colorblind is to ignore the beauty of God's creation. Now, these differences have historically been used to divide, even in the church. And let's just be honest with our history as Southern Baptists. It did not begin very well. When the Southern Baptist Convention began, it began because the, the Baptist Convention that we were part of would not allow slaveholders to be missionaries. And so rather than saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be slaveholders, they said, let's create an entire convention that we can separate and we can do our own thing. This is our history. This is the root of what denomination that we're part of. Slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, all sorts of terrible racist practices have been justified by Christians by saying that these are biblical ideals. Historically, the Christian church does not have a very good track record of embracing differences and respecting the humanity and worth of others. So why bring this stuff up? Why well, even talk about this? If the statement that there is neither Jew nor Greek means that spiritually speaking, we are all the same, then what does this matter? Again, our spiritual standing before Christ is the same for every single person, but that does not negate our responsibility to take care of God's creation. It doesn't negate our responsibility to love justice and do justice and love kindness, especially in relation to fellow image bearers. The things that divide us have taken a different shape in previous generations. But our attitudes are often the same. I've heard it said that since distinctions are wiped away through the gospel, we shouldn't talk about these things that make us different. But what better example to the world that the power of the gospel than to have people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue come together for a common purpose. 
When we put aside our preferences and say, we may not agree, but I'll lay my life down for you, the world doesn't understand that at all. It's confounding to them. They can't figure it out. Nothing else unites people like the gospel. I believe that the gospel shines brightest in us when we take this attitude. I believe that God's glory is displayed in full color when we are united by the gospel. The differences that we have are not to be ignored, but rather to be celebrated in light of what we know and the hope that we have. And this leads us to the final point this morning. We are made to drink of one spirit. Again, another unity, unity, unity. This is found in the last part of verse 13. All of this comes together as one main idea, that the Holy Spirit has sovereignly made us into one family. And this is the main idea of the book. And if God is in the business of uniting, we have no right to divide. When we are born again, we're not just placed into his body, but the Holy Spirit resides in us. There are no partial Christians, no partially indwelt believers. This is the key problem when someone says that you must exhibit these miraculous signs. What about those who don't? What happens to those who don't? Are they now second-class citizens? No. See, every person is created in God's image, and every Christian has been recreated into the likeness of Christ. Every person has infinite value and worth because they bear the image of God. That means that there are no classes, there are no castes in the church. Hebrews 10 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Many people are are seeking some experience as a way to prove that they're believers. But God has already given us everything that we need to know to be right with him. If you're not a Christian, the way that you can be made right with God is by admitting that you're a sinner. That you've broken the laws that God has given to us as our protection, as a way for us to glorify him. That you've broken those laws. You deserve to be punished just as much as I do. You've sinned against God who's given you all that you have. And the message of this passage is that you must turn from your sin and turn to Christ. If you haven't done that, I pray that God makes you so incredibly uncomfortable. I pray that you're literally, your rear end burns to the point where you can't sit down anymore. That God is moving in your heart and you cannot deny it. That you answer that call. I pray that that's your case right now. I pray that you get sick enough that you have to turn to Christ. That your stomach can't handle it anymore. I hope you become miserable to the point that you say, I need Jesus. This is causing all sorts of problems. I need to come to Christ in repentance and faith. I pray that that's your case. But for the Christian, the meaning of this passage is that priorities are often wrong. We're so focused on many things, everything but the gospel. But the gospel must be center of everything that we do. Do we have differences? Absolutely, and I pray that we have more. We always will. And if in God's wisdom, God brings more people to our church family, guess what? More people means more differences. That's something to celebrate. We have people with different convictions. We'll have kids and grandparents. We'll have people who disagree theologically about second and third level issues. We'll, We'll even disagree on how the Christian life looks like from day to day. And that's okay. And the people outside of this church will see people walking into this church. They'll see young, and they'll see old. They'll see white, black, and everything in between. They'll hear different languages. And my prayer is that people will see the differences in our church and say, what in the world's going on over there? 
God must be doing something in that church to see all these people who are not supposed to really like each other or to care about each other. They're coming in and worshiping and fellowshipping. And I need to see what's going on over there, that we can be the light, that we can be that beacon of hope that's shining in Alcoa and, and this area and East Tennessee, that we can shine for the gospel so that people outside of our walls will see what's going on in here and will want a piece of what we have. I hope I hear this, that despite our differences and we celebrate those, we are brought together by a supernatural power, a power that can only come from God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning for unity, unity surrounding uh, this church, uh, but built and based upon the gospel. We pray that all of those differences that, that the world wants us to divide over, that the world seeks to divide us, uh, will be set aside. That we can even celebrate those differences as a, as, a, as a glorifying way that the gospel can overcome and overpower all of those things that, that everyone else says that should divide us. Lord, help us to seek true unity. Help us to be loving and kind to one another. Help us to seek out those instances where we can be unifying forces in your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we...